I've got Steve Clavey from the Land Down Under today. Steve learned his medicine in China and Taiwan in the late 70s through the mid 80s. And in addition to being one of the co-authors of the third edition of the Materia Medica from Eastland Press, he's also the author of Fluid Physiology and Pathology in Chinese Medicine, and he's one of the editors behind The Lantern. Hey, if you're interested in the latest research, if you use Chinese medicine in an integrative practice, or uh, you're interested in the biochemical basis for acupuncture works, The Lantern probably isn't for you. But if you cotton to the perspective that the human is an integral part, really a reflection, of the social, meteorological, and cosmic matrix, along with the various methods and perspectives that have helped to inform Chinese medicine practitioners through the centuries, well, the lantern just might be your cup of tea. Look for a link over on the show notes page. It's an amazing journal if you don't know about it, and we got Steve to thank for that. You know, Steve doesn't just spend his time with writing and scholarly pursuits. He actually has an active practice in Melbourne, Australia, and he specializes in the treatment of women's health, and he has a focus on fertility and endometriosis. That is the main topic of our discussion today. Steve, Huaning Dao Chilazical. Michael, nice to, nice to talk to you today. Always a pleasure. So I first met you when I was a student all those years ago, and you wandered on up to Seattle. And uh, you were the first person to really teach us the uh, gynecological stuff. You've been into this for a long, long time. I recently was reading in The Lantern, in fact, that you studied with really a lineage holder of Chinese medicine, the, the fellow in the Song family. You know, they've got, what, 37 generations of doctors or something like that? Well, I have to say I was surprised because when I was doing the studying, it was very soon after the Cultural Revolution, and they didn't know which way the political situation was going to go. And nobody mentioned this because people had been beaten to death for much lesser offenses than belonging to a long tradition of, uh, of Chinese medicine. So somebody just happened to whisper to me, saying, you know, this guy you've been studying with for a year, his family history in this goes back a long way. And so we had a little graduation ceremony, and I was sitting next to him, and I just I said, you know, your family has been famous in gynecology for 300 years, and that's longer than the history of my, my own country. It's, it's almost unbelievable. And he said, no, 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 you, you've made a mistake. I said, oh, what do you mean? And he said, We've been famous in Ningbo City for 300 years, but before that, we go back another 900. And I'm going, oh, I didn't know anything, you know. There was, not, there was nothing to search on that. But then recently, I started noticing these articles coming up in Chinese talking about this extended lineage. And it was, um, it was, it was pretty amazing. It's now, it, it was it's now safe to talk about that. So it started to come out. Of course, on my, for my part, I only realized that belonging to a long lineage is, uh, is also a valuable commodity, but I never worried about that. And in fact, I was only with him for a year, so I can't really say that I'm a part of his, part of his lineage. Although I met his son recently, they came out to Australia and we, they had me record a 
something in Chinese for their father who's now passed away. That was my teacher. Mm -hmm. So they, uh, when when they do their advertising, I do appear in the in the pictures sometimes, which is a bit funny. <laughs> Got that uh, big nose in there to uh, spice it up, huh? Yeah, but this way back, that you know, nobody would recognize me anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, how did was it just pure luck that you happened to be studying with this cat? I mean, how did that come about? Well, I was basically assigned to him, and. He was not at all interested in teaching me. I was, you know, he just ignored me for the first couple of months until I did exactly the right thing, which was on a trip to Hong Kong, I bought him a carton of foreign cigarettes. And when I came back, suddenly I was okay. Because <laughs> this guy, this, I have to say, this guy, he would smoke one cigarette per patient. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about 40 patients in a morning. So... The air got pretty pretty thick in there. And he also had a Ningbo accent. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard a Ningbo accent, but it's quite difficult to understand. And I was just barely getting my head around the, the um, Hangzhou dialect. And of course, this wasn't translated. I'm just, I'm just sitting there trading on my, on my few years of Mandarin from Taiwan. But luckily, the son, who, the one who came out, he when I really had difficulty, he'd translate. And then I would sit there and just copy scripts. So I've got stacks. I still have stacks of these scripts that, that I would copy from him. And they're still really useful because this, this lineage, this tradition is part of the Zhejiang gynecology style. And the Zhejiang gynecology style really emphasizes the relationship between liver and spleen Okay, wait a minute. Hang on just a second. So it's not just this one family. It's not just this Song family. The Song family is one of the five major Zhejiang styles of gynecology. There's a... Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, there's the Bamboo Forest Monastery, which has been hugely inf uh, influential, and I use their formulas all the time. There's the Chen and the Chen family. They've sort of... Th those two traditions have sort of died out over the last hundred years. And then there's there's some others, some of the more recent ones, which still maintain the same emphasis on relationship of liver and spleen, as opposed, for example, to kidneys. But like uh, Chiu Xiaomei, who Sharon Weizenbaum studied with and translates a lot. She's very good. I use some of her stuff too. He Zihuai was alive when I was there. And I have his book, but I haven't... Uh, researched his his stuff very much but they all share the same very simple practical approach to thing the use of food herbs or herbs like for example Chiu uh, Xiaomei Chiu Xiaomei was the one who really instituted the now pretty much widespread use of maya for um reducing lumps and cysts i was in a um, a lecture by her Maya. Yeah, Maya for cysts, like breast lumps or ovarian cysts or things like that. that. That's interesting because I would usually think of the, you know, like the Muli and those or yes. um that's right. or like the Kongbu or you yep. know the, the phlegm dispersing things. Mm -hmm. Maya. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. This is this is very, very gentle sort of thing. I mean, her reasoning, I listened to a lecture by her, which is a there's a funny story involved with that, but I was in a lecture, and she was explaining how she came to this idea. She, she, her thought process was, well, you can use Maya to help women wean. This is big doses, of course, right, like 30 grams. 
for the cysts. But for helping weaning, you need 60 grams, 120 grams, and they just drink it as tea all day long. And this helps reduce the, the, the breast milk. And she thought, well, if we can do that and the breasts get less full and distended, what about breast lumps? So she tried it and it worked for breast lumps. And she thought, okay, well, if it works for breast lumps. What about other types of lumps? And she tried it and it, and it was good. It's very gentle. It's easy. It's bland. doesn't taste bad. It's cheap. I mean, what more do you want? So this emphasis on food herbs like Hawthorne, you know, Shanja or Chen Pi or Qing Pi, the, the Mandarin peels and, and things like that are, is really a distinctive uh, characteristic of the Zhejiang style. Any sense of, of how this came about? I mean, I know that close by there is, there's, the, you know, the Mangha clan, there's this group of doctors that kind of had their own thing going. Was this one of these situations where you've got this, this group of practitioners they all kind of have their own thing, but they, they kind of intermingle with each other and they all influence each other. I don't think there's a direct relation to the Mengha stream like Volker talks about, but there is a relation in the sense that they are part of this north-south divide. Right. No, actually, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't mean to suggest that they were part of Mengha, but I was saying like the Mengha doctors, there were these group – they kind of hung out with each other. They competed with each other, but they also learned from each other. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair enough to say. I think the north south divide is is the determining factor in the simple, easy on the digestion type of style that the Zhejiang gynecologists had. One of the I, I was at the Red Cross Hospital in Hangzhou for a while, and he, where I studied with. Song Guangji was was in uh, at the Zhongyin the Zhejiang Zhongyin and but we we're in the Munjin, in the in the clinical section there, and one of the doctors that I knew from the Red Cross came over, and I, I was a bit surprised. She came over to get a consultation with him, and I said, "So yeah, I hadn't seen her for a while." So I went out in the hall and I said, I "said um, why did you come all the way across town to see him?" When you've got Gaulasher back at the at the Red Cross, she's really good. And she said, "Oh well, yeah, Gaulasher is very good, but you know what? Professor Sung's formulas just feel so good in the stomach." Ah, and I'll tell you why. So there's that spleen liver thing, right? Yeah, it, there's that. That's true. But he would also all of the herbs would be powdered, right? All of them would be. You know, it'd be Chao Baiju or Chao Bai Shao or Chao Dangwei or Chao Dangshan. They'd all be prepared in advance. So basically, they're cooked, right, already. And he would use particularly small doses, well, particularly compared to, to other people. So, you know, Dangshan, instead of being like 15 grams, he'd, he'd use maybe 10 or even 8 sometimes. Yang Hu Suo would be, you know, 6 to 8, maybe 10 in extreme doses. It's things like that. So he would use small doses of prepared herbs, and they just feel good on the stomach. And this is where that north-south divide comes in, because the the concept there is that the northerners are people of the steppes. You know, they're the, you know they're infused with the, like the Mongol blood and the Manchus, and you know there's sort of been an intermingling in there. And they're bigger, they're taller, they're stronger. When you're using, say, Shanghan Lun formulas, man, you got to you got to really hit them 
in order to sweat. But the Southerners generally, from the middle, from the Yangtze on down, they're a bit, you know, they're a bit smaller, they're a bit more softer. And I think historically that's probably accurate because, of course, when the northern tribes in, invaded, the court went south. That's why the Hangzhou dialect sounds so much like Mandarin. So they went south and they were rich. You've got the rich people of Suzhou. You've got the rich people of Hangzhou. I mean, these guys were the, the salt merchants. They were the, the big business people. And of course, when you have lots of money and you're not poor, you tend to go, you know, you get a bit soft. You lose your edge a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're prescribing, that has to be kept in mind. And you like the finer things. Well, isn't there also kind of a uh, a thing? It's like, well, the Northerners, it's like, we're tough. We wouldn't use those, you know, wussy little Southern formulas. What in the hell is that going to do? I mean, there's, there, is there kind of a, a cultural piece to that as well? And the same with the Southerners. It's like, we're delicate people. We can't handle the Mahuang. Yes, yes. I think there's a bit of self-belief there as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the... Song family is part of this Zhejiang current, so to speak. These days, women's health and fertility is a big business. It's, you know, a lot of people do it. It it can be very lucrative. There's a lot of um, cozying up to some of the, you know, more integrative medicine side of things, uh, reproductive endocrinology and all that. I'm wondering how this soft Zhejiang Song family style fits in with all of that. I think it. I think it works pretty well. I mean, patients can sometimes worry about herbs, and uh, well, you you know how how I do it. I I, I set them up before they ever get in. When uh, patients say, "Oh, I've got a friend who would take this," I say, "Look, really emphasize how bad the herbs are." And then when they call up for consultation, for initial consultation, the, the secretary says, now, you've heard about the herbs, right? Yeah. yeah. And then when they get in to see me, you know, I ask them, how'd you hear about me? And then and you go, oh, so-and-so told me. And I say, okay, did they tell you about the herbs? And by then they're freaking out, right? Yeah. They're going, well, how, how bad are these things? And I go, what's the worst thing you've ever had in your whole life? Well, there is the chodofu. Well, gosh, even I can't do that. But you like it, don't you? Mm, pushing. Oh, really? But they um, by then the patients are going. Oh, this is this is terrible. I go. Well, you know, I think you'll be all right. You look tough to me. So um, <laughs> then, of course, they take the herbs home. They cook them up. They're expecting this really, 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 really awful thing, and it's not too bad. It's not too bad. Well, and, and if you're using these more food grade herbs. That's a whole different story, really. Yeah, there there are ways to um, there are ways to use stronger herbs if you have to. But a lot of Chinese medicine really is managing patient expectations, and and because this is totally new to them, they don't know what's going on. It's not like in China where somebody will come in and they'll say, "Well, I've got pain down my lung channel," where they know what's going on. You know, they know what the score is. But here we've got to we've got to be quite careful into how we introduce people to particularly raw herbs. But mm-hmm. if you do if you do it right, patients not only don't have a problem with it. I get people coming to me going, you know, 
yeah, you know, I've had the granules, I've had all that stuff. And, and uh, they're convenient, but they, they, I'm just not getting the results I want. And my friend said that they're taking raw herbs and they're getting really good results. And it's not that granules don't get results, they do. But sometimes you need the strength and the refinement that you can get with prescribing raw herbs that you, that you really tailor for that patient. And that's where I think, coming back to your original question, that yeah, for, for women these days, it's a really good way to go. But it's not always really gentle, though. I have to say, for example, if I'm starting off with somebody who's come in for infertility, for example, very often I have to I have to go a little bit stronger. I might start off with a, a small script until they until they take it and go. Yeah, that was okay. All right, I can I can do this. Yeah, that's right. I can do this. But pretty soon, if not the first time, then at least the second time, I'm going to really start looking at what Western medicine, and I have to say a lot of, a lot of other people doing uh, Chinese medicine don't look at very much. And that's the lining to the uterus. I mean, as I say to the patients, the lining of the uterus is the field you're trying to sow a crop in. And so, you know, most of the time people go to a Chinese herbalist, acupuncturist, and if they're going for fertility, they'll end up with kidney tonifying herbs, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe at the best, at they might get liver liver cheese smoothing herbs. But without fixing that lining to the uterus, fixing that endometrium, making sure there's no clotting there, and that like a, a, a well-tended field, you've removed the weeds, you've removed the rocks, and you can now plant something. So often that step is totally ignored. And when patients don't let me do that, for example, they say, oh, no, no, but I'm, I'm, I'm right in the middle of an IVF cycle right now, and I need something for egg quality. Every, you know, IVF people, the Western doctors, they are totally OCD, totally focused on eggs. If you ever go, what's wrong? You know, what's, if the patient ever asks them what's happening, what's, why isn't it working? They go, oh, it's your eggs. You're getting old. It's your eggs. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's important. But those eggs have to go somewhere. And it's just like, they seem not to pay any attention to what happens. Once the egg's fertilized, then it's just the luck of the draw whether it works or not. Well, it isn't just the luck of the draw. You can, you can, in a very short order of time, make that lining to the uterus much more receptive simply by asking detailed questions about the period, you know, the, the color of the period, the consistency of the blood, the timing, the length, the heaviness. All those things are really crucial to know. And I say to patients, if I've got three months to get this endometrium in better shape, that's the fastest way to make a big difference with your fertility. And that's particularly if you see any signs of the of blood stagnation, like Greg Livingston was talking about in, in your podcast. Those are all so crucial. Uh, but asking about the period is really important. Steve, what are some of the key things that you look for with a woman's period that you want to see change so that you know they've got that fertile field? What are, what are the key things that make you go, yeah, we've got to work on this, this, and this? Okay. Two main differentiations. Is it too thick or is it too thin? Too thick means clots, right? Mm-hmm. Too thin means that topsoil isn't, isn't, isn't thick enough to hold a fertilized ovum coming in. So I will ask them, how heavy it is. And generally speaking, 
uh, my range of normal is they should have to change, not do they change, but they should have to change, say, tampons or pads, just normal pads, three times a day. But they should never have to change more than every two hours. Nowadays, a lot of women are using cups, and I reckon that a, a cup is about two normal pads. So maybe a, at least having to change a cup and a half, you know, these menstrual cups that women are using now. Mm. Maybe they're not doing that well, in the States. I, on the West Coast, they were. I live in the Midwest. Okay. <laughs> well, then in a, in a little while, they'll also be coming in with the um, menstrual underwear. This is brand new. Okay. So, so one of the questions to ask is not just is the flow heavy or light, but I mean, get very specific. How many pads? Oh, yeah, yeah. Very, very specific. Because, you know, people will come in and go, oh, I've got such a heavy period. Oh, yeah? How often do you change? Oh, man, I have to change it twice a day. You know what, it like, what it's like. In, in, in Chinese mm-hmm. medicine, all the questions must, you really got to chase it down. You know, somebody can come in and I had this not that long ago. All my thrushes playing up. Now, if you heard that, what would you think? I'm sorry. Say that again. You. It, 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 what does thrush mean for you? Mm. Oh, my nose bleeds. Ah. So you know you can't make us. This is so crucial when you're doing Chinese herbal medicine. Anyway, you can't assume that you know what the patient's talking about. Track it down. For example, with endometriosis, I'll do the same thing. What does endometriosis mean for you? When do you go, oh, that's my endo making me feel that? What's that feeling that you get when the endo comes up? But I guess we can talk about endometriosis a little bit later. With the uh, fertility aspect, the length of the period is really crucial. If, if a woman who's in her 30s comes in and says, oh, yeah, my period lasts for seven days, it really should be four or five days. And seven days indicates to me that they probably have some clotting that needs to come out. Um, the consistency of the blood, again, is really crucial. Is it, too, is it too thick or too thin? Is the color bright or is it brown or is it pink? Another question that's really important to ask that nobody ever asks, is there any clear mucus in the menstrual blood? Because if they have, and what I mean by that is not a mucusy blood or not sort of a sticky blood, I mean actual clear mucus. So some women can say, oh, you know, half of the tampon is white or sticky with this clear mucus, the other half is red. So that's what I'm talking about is really detailed stuff. Now, clear mucus like that could show that there's fluid retention in the fallopian tubes, that's called hydrosalpings, or it could simply show that there are, there's phlegm in the tubes, which can give you little spider web adhesions just enough to slow that egg down in its passage through the fallopian tube, just enough to slow it down so that by the time it gets fertilized and implants, it's, the timing is off. So it's little things like that that we can tell a lot. I don't really trust the, well, it's not that I don't trust it, but the, the scan that they do that shows the thickening, the thickness of the endometrium, I think is more like a farmer standing about half a mile away saying, you know, I, I reckon the f- soil in that field is good enough. You got to get your, you got to, you know, you have to really get those detailed questions, which I think are much better with Chinese medicine. Not that I'm biased or anything. <laughs> well, you just have more experience with it. True. 
this for me is one of the real beauties of Chinese medicine, especially we can dial in getting the information that we need. It really can give us a picture that we can work with. Well, I think um, again, it's I'm a bit of a bit of a traditionalist because I really don't mix anything else. I don't do naturopathy, homeopathy, or anything else. I just do Chinese medicine. And back all those decades ago when I started, that was really rare. But I, I just thought, look, nobody seems to be doing just plain old Chinese medicine. I'm going to try it and see if it. <laughs> Let's see if it works. Yeah. And it and it has it has been. And in fact, doubling down on that, I really just, uh, it's important to understand things from a Chinese medicine point of view, or, you know, you can, you can have your own insights into mechanisms. And this is how Chinese medicine progresses over the centuries, is people have insights into what's going on. This next issue of The Lantern, we've got a... Um, a record of a day in the clinic of Auntie Babbage, who I know is one of your, one of the people you like to read about, but he has some insights into uh, some mechanisms which are peculiarly Auntie Babbage. Yes, he has a particular frame of reference. Yes, I'm he, looking he does. Forward to that. Right. <laughs> so you have a unique way of being able to talk to people and really get information. Now, so often with Chinese medicine, I mean, I don't know if they did this to you when you were there, but when I was in both China and Taiwan, if they found out I was a Chinese doctor, the first thing they do is they stick their wrist out, like check my pulse and tell me what's going on. Did they do that stuff for, to you when you were there? Uh, I do remember being at a restaurant once and they found out I was a Chinese doctor and, and they pointed at this woman who had dark circles under her eyes and said, tell me what's wrong with her. And they were having a bit of a joke at her expense because, of course, dark circles under the eyes are called um, Bai Dai Chen. Mm -hmm. Bai Dai Chen is Leucorrhea circles. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. But the, uh, but yeah, you, you, you know, it's not only us, though. You don't have to be a Westerner to get that. The Chinese doctors throughout the ages have complained about this this tendency of patients to try to test you by by getting you to take their take their pulse. Right. Well, this is this is the point. And as western practitioners doing this, I know in my own learning of this, there's this kind of archetype of the great scholarly doctor who can look at the tongue and sort of look at the person and you feel the pulse and you know everything about them. And, and we sort of have that archetype as well. I, I think that's knocking around in the background there. Um, maybe it's because I'm not a very good pulse diagnostician. I tend to ask my patients lots of questions because otherwise it's hard for me to get the information. But, but isn't there this kind of thing that we have about, well, you know, a good Chinese doctor isn't supposed to ask too many questions. Well, no, you've got this sujen, right? It's, I think right from the beginning, interrogation is a major part of, of diagnosis. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I, I wouldn't call myself a, a, a you know, super, super pulse taker. Of mm -hmm. course, I do reference the pulse, and you can get lots of information from that. Tongue is crucially important. I'm curious to know how you have developed your skills 
and ability to ask these kinds of questions. Because I've watched you in clinic and you ask questions unlike most practitioners ask questions. I mean, you really have a way of kind of dialing into areas that people just are not inhabiting. I think it comes down to not being confused by having to do bunches of other systems. You know, I'm not a naturopath. I'm not a homeopath. I'm not a, I'm not, I only do Chinese medicine. So in my mind, when I'm look, when I'm dealing with a patient, it's only what's the Chinese medicine pattern here? What's going on? Or if there isn't a pattern, especially what the hell is going on? Because mm-hmm. when I came out in the, in the mid eighties and, and had to start practicing, I wouldn't say I was fantastically well-trained. It was, like I said, it was soon after the Cultural Revolution. Things were difficult. Foreigners weren't uh, particularly welcome. Unless they bring cigarettes. Yeah, unless you bring the cigarettes. I remember sitting at the um, Zhejiang TCM College uh, mess hall. They didn't want me fraternizing with with the students too much because, of course, they were worried about being attacked themselves and, and they're worried that the students would get funny ideas because who knows what this guy's going to say. So they stuck me in sort of the back and, and gave me some food, but I had to sit there and I had to beat my feet on the floor to keep the rats away because they were, they were just looking at me. Of course that was then and uh, things are really, really different now, but they, they just didn't have any clue what to do with me at that point. So when I got out, I had to, a lot of the things I had to think for myself. So for example, I had a, I had a patient once, and I think I told you this story years ago because it, it did form my thinking. She said, um, when I smell petrol or, or gasoline or perfumes, I get really dizzy. I get headaches. What's that about? I didn't have a clue, right? I had to think it out. I had to think that out for myself. And that was a really valuable exercise because, you know, you can look in the classics, you're not going to find, you're not going to find what happens when somebody smells petrol or perfume and they get really dizzy. And I mean, in her case, it was a little bit easier because she was really fat. (laughs) So it, it did take some thinking at, at, at that stage. I've honed my ability since, but Gradually, I figured out, look, okay, petrol, perfume, these, gasoline, these are all very pungent smells, right? Yes. And they break phlegm up. They break up phlegm, which can allow that phlegm to be carried around the body, and that's what was happening to her. Um, Since then, though, I've realized there can be another aspect to this, petrol, gasoline, perfumes, intense smells like that, because they are pungent and dispersing, you could have the opposite of that. You could have a yin deficient type of patient who who has a tendency to, to yang rising, and they will have a similar effect. It'll just take the yang chi right up, won't it? Yeah, that's right. But the treatments are totally different. This is where the pattern aspect comes in. So learning to suss things out for yourself, learning to think, learning to be a TCM detective or Chinese medicine detective is not only crucially important, but it's also a lot of fun. So it seems, I mean, I remember when I was in school, even though that was a long time ago, I can still remember. 
you know, and, and our teachers would often talk about, well, you know, there's these patterns and there's these boxes that you see in the books, but don't put your patients in a box. And there was always this suggestion that we learned to, to think it out for ourselves, you know, and even if there is something that's explained, you know, in a very simple way uh, by the books to, to be able to grasp those fundamentals and, and use them where you don't understand how things are working yet. And, and I think for me, this is one of the biggest challenges about being a Chinese medicine practitioner the stuff that we know and we can kind of work and the things that we're familiar with, that's one thing. But when things kind of go askew and we're not sure where we stand and the things that have worked aren't working, well, of course, this is a wonderful opportunity to learn something new. How do you keep your wits about you when that's going on? And, and how do you maybe break your frame a bit so you can come up with a decent question that might help you to illuminate what's happening. Well, I, I think you were lucky because you had a really good school that emphasized the importance of thinking for yourself. I think that was, that was, really, that was really crucial. But to directly answer that last question, what I'll tend to do is stop you know, say somebody comes in, I've given them a script. I'm pretty sure that's going to be the, you know, the way to go. They come back in, they go, yeah, you know, I've had things from you in the past that really were fantastic, but this time it didn't quite do it. Or even worse, they might be a first-time patient and they come, you know, they come back and they go, no, didn't do anything. I mean, some patients are just like mm -hmm. that uh, and they don't, they don't notice, which is why it's really crucial in your very first intake to number of things. You know, they'll come, I'll say, okay, so what would you like me to work on? They go, oh, I've got so much stuff. Oh, okay, fine. Okay, imagine that you could only fix one of all that stuff, one thing, and you have to live with the rest of it all the rest of your life. What would that number one thing be? Oh, wow. Really focus them down, huh? It, that's right. Oh, no, I couldn't do that. No, no, you have to pick just one. I, I'm not going to treat just that one thing, but I need to know what's the most important thing for you. Okay, and then I'll write down, so they'll tell me, and then I'll write down one, okay? Okay, what's the next most important thing? What's the most serious thing for you? Number two, right? Okay, so then they come back. So some patients, you just have to, you have to do this. They'll come back and they go, yeah, you know, I don't feel any, I don't feel any different. I took your herbs, I don't feel any. Okay, so uh, what about this number one thing? Oh, no, 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 that's gone. No, but, but I still have this thing that's like number three right, or four. Right, right, right. I've seen this again and again, of course. We all have. In, indeed, that's right. So that's why it's really crucial to, to focus on what they feel like. You know, when some patients come in, they've got, they've got this Western disease name you've never heard of. And some patients delight in finding these things that, you know, they know you'll never have heard of. Well, and some people just identify with their diagnosis. Indeed. That's right. And labels, you know, labels do make people people feel better. But that doesn't help you because you might not know anything about that thing. It's a bit, you know, when you specialize in Ghani, those things get less, and specialize in anything, those bits get less and less. So you, you have a pretty good handle on all the stuff that's going to walk through the door, even though... You know, there's enough to keep everything interesting. But if you're a generalist, you really have to be very broad. 
And I think the way forward is just use your Chinese medicine. Like I said, with the endo, say they come in and they, you know, mention this disease name and say, okay, well, okay, that's fine. So um, what does that mean? What does that what does it feel like? What, where, where is it uncomfortable? What's the, what, are, what are the detailed things? Oh, I feel bad. Okay, where do you feel bad? I just feel awful. Right, right, right. <laughs> you really got to press them. And it's, uh, but if, you, if they walk out of that room without you totally understanding what they're feeling, it's going to be really hard to get results. You just won't know. So say say they you've done everything right and they've taken the script. You think you're doing the right thing. They come back and they say, "Yeah, really didn't do anything." Then you've got a dilemma, right? Do you keep going because you haven't done enough, or do you do something different? And that's where the clinical judgment comes in, and experience helps with that a lot. I mean, generally, I'll say I'll, I'll say to people, "Well, you know, you've had this for like ten years." And I've only been treating you for like 10 days. So maybe it's a bit early to be changing, to be changing things. Um, on the other hand, it's clear something isn't right. At that point, I'll say to them, okay, it looks like I've missed something. I'm going to go right back to basics. I'm going to take, I'm going to go right back to, let's start right at the beginning and I'll just ask them all those things again, looking particularly for places where I might not have understood what they meant. Generally, if you understand what they're feeling as precisely as possible, you can design something to alleviate their condition. But that's what I'll do. I'll take it right back to the most uh, fundamental questions and go deeper. I'm really struck in this. I mean, this makes a lot of sense to me. And it's so obvious in a way. The importance of finding out how does the patient feel? I mean, what's actually their felt, embodied sense of them and this experience? Well, it's important because, you know, they go to the Western doctor who's as busy as possible trying to fit them into the boxes that you talked about before, but they're Western medicine boxes. And often the patient doesn't feel that at all. You know, the, pa- the doctor goes, oh, I think you're depressed. And they go, you know, I don't really feel depressed. And the doctor goes, trust me, you're depressed. Because then they can give them an antidepressant. I mean, how many, how many options does a, a GP have? What, what, you know, they don't have lots of options. Not like us. We can design things for the patient. We, we are so flexible and um but a GP really, they have to push the patients into these boxes. And this is where the, the whole evident, medicine evidence just drives me crazy because you're encouraging this thinking by the box thing where they go, you know, I know there's the evidence for this particular drug to work. And this patient doesn't quite fit the parameters, but they're close enough. So I'm going to give it to them anyway. I mean, sure, evidence is really important, and uh, I, I think, but that's that's really the Western medicine job, and and the people who are into research in Chinese medicine, fantastic. But as a clinician, it can cause problems. For example, it already causes problems for Western doctors. You know, they they learn in medical school about when you're doing medicine uh, medicine research, you don't want the placebo effect to skew your results, so you try to reduce the placebo as much as you can. 
But then they get confused. They actually carry that into clinic. In clinic, you want every single possible thing going for you that you can. If, if you can encourage the placebo effect, by God, you want to do that. You don't want to exclude it. I mean, you're not doing research in clinic. You're trying to get patients to feel better. So, for example, they did some research on uh, different colored pills. Which colored pills have the best placebo effect? Blue, green, black, white, red? Turns out red. Yeah, well, you know, matrix, baby. Exactly. So sometimes what I'll do is, you know, just have, make sure I've got some red dates in the script, make sure I've got some goji berries in the script, something like that. Not only does it make the herbal formula look nice, but, you know, who knows? It might have that, might have that little bit of extra, oh, I feel good factor. Yeah, it, and it's pretty. And it's pretty. So I, I have patients get off my table sometimes. And, and they're quite astonished because they feel really different. This is one of the things that I so love about acupuncture. It, it can so dramatically and so quickly change a person's perception of themselves. And they get off the table and they say something to the effect of, well, I feel, it's like, I don't feel pain or I feel great or I haven't felt like this in I don't know how long. What if it's just in my head? This is This is such... An interesting thing to me. I hear it on a regular basis. And it, it's, what if it's in my head? And, and what goes through my head is, is uh, what goes through my head? What goes through my head is, if it's just in your head, it's somehow not valid. And then it brings up this question, which is, if the mind can make the body ill, we call it, we call it hypochondria. If the mind can make the body well, we call it placebo. Okay, there's those two issues. But here's the big question for me. What's up with this mind thing? Because it seems to play a really powerful part. And of course, here in the West, we see it as somehow being separate from our physicality. Those of us that practice Chinese medicine have the good fortune to recognize it's actually interwoven with our physicality, like the warp and woof of a, of a piece of fabric. So we don't, really don't, we don't really make that distinction so much, but our patients get very, very hung up on that. I'm wondering how you deal with that. Well, I don't get that a lot here. It might be a different, different population. I really see it as Western medicine conditioning. And this mind body differentiation is slowly, slowly wearing down so that people are recognizing that, you know, how their body feels is going to influence the mind and, and vice versa. So I think that's gradually wearing down. Maybe in the Midwest, it's a little bit slower. But uh, when patients say, you know, I feel really good, my next statement is usually, well, you know what? That's normal. <laughs> how you should be feeling. Oh. Okay. I, I, I'll, I'll pull that one out next time it rolls by. And uh, often, you know, it's also important when they do feel good, and especially if they come, you know, if they feel good, I say, well, you know, that's great because now you've got, now that you know you go well with herbs, you go well with acupuncture, you now have an alternative to white coats and stethoscopes. 
just remember, it's not that we can do everything. Chinese medicine isn't fantastic at everything. Western medicine is fantastic at lots of stuff, but they're not fantastic at everything either. And here is an option for you to use if you're not feeling good, and especially when the Western doctor is going, hmm, you know, not really sure what it is. Maybe we can try this new drug that's just come out. Maybe you can say, okay, um, I'll, give, I'll give that a bit of thought. I'm just going to pop over here first. Right. So constantly, I feel it's really important to reinforce that they do feel good and that they should keep that in mind after they've gone away. They can come back then, or at least they can give it a try, or at least give me a ring and ask me, you know, can you, do you think you could help with this? And I might say, no, I can't. You know? But I might say, and probably will say, oh, I can give it a try, or yes, I've seen that a lot, that should go really well, you know. But encouraging your patients to recognize that they do feel good with your treatment and to remember that. Remember that they felt good. Yeah, so much, so much, so often, well, especially here in the states where they sell drugs on television, right? They have advertising for pharmaceuticals. Um, people are being bombarded right and left with advertisements about how you're feeling bad. Yeah, I think this is. I think, well, we don't have that here in Australia, and we have a really fantastic healthcare system, and the and the doctors here are not as rabidly anti-complementary, or at least most of them aren't, as they might be in other parts. But I think there's a big problem when you mix money and medicine. They should not be inextricably linked. It's the same thing. I mean, these are getting more into more broad issues, but it's the same thing when you get medicine by litigation. Mm. We have a lot of that now in, in Western medicine, thankfully not much in Chinese medicine, but you know, how many times are people sent for scans or tests or things that they normally, by the clinical judgment of the doctor, wouldn't need, but the doctor is doing it simply because if they happen to miss that one in 10,000 or one in a million chance, they'll be sued. Right. Yeah. Defensive medicine. This is medicine by litigation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's, um, let's move a little bit to a slightly different subject. One that's near and dear to my heart, which is uh, fluid physiology and pathology. Ah, a twenty-year-old book. It's a twenty-year-old book. Yeah. Well, and it's it's about to uh, be re-released in a new form. It is. Uh, Dan Bensky has agreed to do that through Eastland Press, and he and I have spent many uh, months going over it and correcting things and and uh, improving improving the. Um, the final quality, which from the Eastland Press, I'll, I'll be very happy to see this new edition because their book designer is so, he's an award-winning book designer, and uh, it'll be much more clear and uh, well set out. It's going to be a pleasure, I think, to, to see it. But it, according to Dan, I think we'll probably see that in the early, some, sometime in the first half of 2019. I look forward to it. I've, I've got the first edition, and, and I think at, at this moment in time, at least as we're recording this, those are available on Amazon for like $400. Yeah, you'd always have people who try things, try things like yeah. that. But uh, yeah, the first edition, second edition had lots of uh, different aspects of uh, acupuncture and 
fluid physiology, including... Uh-huh. So more acupuncture in the second edition. There, oh, yes, yes. That's the second edition from like 10 or 12 years ago. And how will the third edition be different than the first two? Basically with the corrections that we've done in a new format. So there's not a lot of new content. I, we did start to put in new content, and then I realized, wait a minute, the stuff I'm putting in would actually be better in a new book. So I'm working on a, a series of books on gynecology. And uh, some of that content I was going to put in the fluid physiology book. We're just we're making a whole gynecology book, which I think will be will be better because the th- acupuncture content from that was in the fluid physiology book basically got no notice, even though. Wang Jui is now a household name in in Chinese medicine circles, but I think his first the first article ever to appear in English was translated in the fluid physiology book. Never hear about that, right? There's some other interesting, interesting. Well, of course, I I wrote I wrote it. So, so did you did you study with Doctor Wang Jui? I did not, but I happened to come across an article in a Chinese medicine journal called. The phenomena of acupuncture channel deficiency. I thought oh, that's interesting, and it was interesting enough yeah. with lots of new content. I mean, you know, Wang Jui is so he's so creative, and and um, and this article was really interesting, and it's there in that second edition of the Fluid Physiology, and of course, it'll be there in the Eastland Press book too. Great. What is it all those years ago that got you so interested? And working with fluids, phlegm, room, you know, all things kind of uh, squishy and soggy. It was actually Jerry Cantor from New York who, um, who was really interested in phlegm. And, he, and we, you know, he keep asking questions about phlegm and stuff, and especially when we're walking around the streets of Nanjing in 1981. And uh, he'd been, he'd been um, pulled over by one of the spit, the spit monitors because – it's against the law to spit on the street, and he'd happened to spit on the street, and uh, and the spit monitor. Wait, they had spit monitors. They had spit monitors, right? And the spit monitor collared him and, and started saying, "You know, you can't spit on the street." And Jerry, Jerry's going, uh, "Wow, you know, this is great. You're not showing me any favoritism at all." And the spit monitor is thinking that he's arguing with him, so he starts to yell, and then Jerry's going, "Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I, you shouldn't, you know." Just because I spit, you shouldn't show it. Just because I'm a foreigner, you shouldn't show me any favoritism. Might, meanwhile, he's got a crowd around, <laughs> and you know, you've seen—I'm sure you've seen the spit grills on the streets in in China. They used to be absolutely horrendous, but uh, he was very interested in in phlegm and sputum and all things like that. So I started doing some translation about it, and uh, I thought, yeah. I can make this into a book. And another reason was that when when you're writing a book, you know, you spend three, four, five years. And what you don't want to see just before your book comes out is somebody else covering exactly the same topic. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Well, I, I think I can say nobody has covered that topic <laughs> before <laughs> or since. And in fact, you know, it's, People really don't know where to put it. Although I was at a, I went to a scholarly conference in uh, Canberra in uh, November last year, and they were all they're historians of medicine, uh, some of them very well known, and uh, they wanted the 
convener wanted me to do a little bit of a talk on Chinese medicine from a practitioner's point of view, because they're doing it all from the academic point of view. And uh, they didn't know me from Adam, but then I gave the talk, and then one of them said, hey, wait a minute, are you the guy that did that fluid book? I said, yeah. And they said, wow, oh yeah, we know you. You know, that's the only source for so many of these concepts. So even the academics haven't dug as deep into into some of those aspects as that fluid book covers. Well, I got that fluid book years ago. I still read it from, in fact, I was reading it just the other day because I got a really tough case of edema. And I keep thinking, you know, this this is a book that they could probably translate back into Chinese and it would help a lot of people. Oh, I'm not sure about that. I mean, of course, most of the sources for the book were in Chinese. It's just that they're spread out here and there. All I did was gather them together. Well, exactly. It's it's all in one place. It's the compendium of phlegm. It's uh, well. Did when you when you got your first edition, did you get the samples? Samples of what? The the phlegm samples that we sent out with. You didn't get I that. Don't think I got the phlegm. No, okay. I don't. I'll, I'll send them to you, Michael. It's fine. They're a bit. They're a bit dried out by now, but I'll, I'll send them to you. But I, but I lived in Beijing for a few years, so I know a lot about you should street have had, side phlegm. You've got samples of your own. That's fine. Then. <laughs> hey, I, I want to ask you a, a question about fluids. And, and I'm actually asking this for a listener. I've been waiting for an opportunity to do this, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of excited. This is a first. Okay. So I, so I had someone recently... Because I, I, you know, I ask people, I say, hey, is there anyone you'd like to hear on the podcast? And, and I had a guy recently say, I'd like to hear Steve Clavey. And I wrote him back and I said, you're in luck because I'm going to be talking to him in a couple of weeks. And, and, and he writes me back and says, good, would you ask him about how to treat a condition where you're seeing some phlegm or you're seeing some dampness, but the person is mostly indeficient? Right, so we got damp heat. We know that you got to break those two apart. But what about treating dampness when there's also yin deficiency? Yeah, this is a really good question. And in fact, I asked I asked a Chinese doctor exactly the same thing at one point because it is it is important, and it's important to know that yin deficiency itself can lead to phlegm or damp. In fact, it's really crucial. I'll give you I'll give you a really concrete example of it in the gynecological sphere, which should tie everything all together. So, you know, you get polycystic ovaries, and they're meant to be a little bit overweight, and they're meant to, you know, have the hair growth and all of this thing. Well, polycystic ovaries usually are created because when I talk to patients, I say there's this residue in the body that has coated the ovarian capsule. And the little follicles that grow each month from which one of them will ovulate, and then the rest should disappear. Those follicles also have a, a coating of phlegm, and they don't disappear. They get stuck, and they can pull fluid into themselves and become cysts, which will last a few months. Then they might go away, but by then they've built up another few cysts. Most of the time, these women are, like I said, overweight and you know, greasy skin, you know, tongue coat that might be a little bit thicker, and they have phlegm and so on. But not always. And some of these women are actually quite thin and emaciated. And if you're working on the polycystic ovaries are phlegm assumption, that gets really hard to figure out. But if you look in the fluid book, there's a, you know, students often ask me a similar question. How, how does that work? 
This, in fact, is deficient phlegm. And it's phlegm that's the result of deficiency. Now, in, in the book, there's an there's a essay by Zhang Jingyue. Zhang Jingyue did the Jingyue Quan Shu and also the Lei Jing, very well-known Ming Dynasty uh, practitioner who has had an encyclopedic knowledge of the uh, Huangdi Nei Jing, and that's where the Lei Jing comes in. Lei means category. So he mm -hmm. took the Huangdi Nei Jing and made it into categories. Anyway, his essay says this phlegm is created from kidney deficiency. And it could be kidney yang deficiency, in which case the yang qi is not, is not sufficient to metabolize the fluids. You don't get the qi hua, the qi transformation aspect, because the yang isn't supporting it. Conversely, you can also have kidney yin, which is deficient, which means the fluids are deficient. And you can get, uh, so because they're deficient, they thicken. And then especially if you get say, yin deficiency that is leading to heat, then that's yet another factor that can thicken the fluids. All of these things can lead to phlegm in the body. Now, the treatment for this is really is different. For kidney yang deficiency, of course, you tonify kidney yang. That'll help transform the fluids. This is wen hua, right? Warm transformation. But for kidney yin deficiency, you don't treat the phlegm directly. You absolutely don't treat the phlegm directly. And, and Zhang Jingyue is scathing about the people who try to do that using things like uh, Gun Tan Wan or, or Archen Wan or all the drying, warming, parching things that will just make the patient worse. He said the treatment for that can only be to nourish the body fluids. Otherwise, you try to eliminate phlegm. How are you going to do that? The only way you can do it is eliminate every single bit of body fluid. Well, that's not going to be too good for you, is it? So in, that, in those cases where it's a, a yin deficiency with phlegm, tonifying the yin is going to be the best way to go about it. And then you can, you can add maybe just a little bit of some of those herbs that also break up phlegm. But if you look at the back of the fluid book, there's a list of herbs that deal with phlegm, and not all of them are what you would think. So something like Xuanshen, for example, is also a phlegm reducer. Something like Tu Sizi also deals with damp. So, uh, or Qianshi, which is another really underused, um, underused herb because it consolidates the kidneys, Gu, Gu Shen. Uh, but it also clears damp. As a matter of fact, way back, one of the, one of the people that you'd know, um, uh, Su Dong Po, you know, Dong Po Ro, mm. that beautiful dish, Dong Po Ro with the fatty pork. Oh, yeah. Um, if oh, you're not vegetarian, no, no. it's a beautiful dish. He was one of the people who dug the, uh, the West Lake in Hangzhou. He was an administrator there in the Song Dynasty. But every day he would have Qian Shi, which is the fox nuts, the uh, Ureli, I think, E U R Y A L E. He would have that for breakfast because it tonified kidneys, but also removed damp. Anyway, mm -hmm. tonifying is the way to get rid of the uh, the indeficiency. And even something like Jirbai Di Huang Wan, to be totally concrete in the treatment method, if you look at Jirbai Di Huang Wan, it has both tonifying and draining components, just like Liu Wei Di Huang Wan. 
but a little bit more for cooling. Mm -hmm. All you need to do except you're you're getting rid of more heat. Yes, right. You you just emphasize those aspects of that formula that you need. So this reminds me a little bit of treating dry coughs, where you've got this phlegm that's kind of desiccated in the bronchioles or in the lungs, and you need to moisten to get that stuff to move. That's really good. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good analogy there, Michael. It's uh, floating the boat. You bring up the fluids to enable the, the pathogenic phlegm to be eliminated. So, right, because then, it's, because then you can kind of wash things away. If they're fluid, then you can wash them away. Yes. Yep. So I hope that answers that, that question. But it, it, it is really, it's a common question I had it myself. And, uh, and, but this is where the, the flexibility in raw herbs, the way that you can very subtly design your script for the patient, it just, it comes in really handy. Yeah. Well, and this too, for me, is the beauty of this medicine that we practice, that, that we're able to look at every unique situation and go, what do they need? What is actually going on here? And what would help it? It's never a dull moment, is it? No, it isn't. And it's, uh, that's why after 30 years of practicing, it just, you know, it never ceases to be fun. Of course, it's really, I think it's important to keep learning things and, you know, reading things and trying out new, new angles. Because really, you know, it's, after a long time, it's easy to sit in clinic and go, okay, I know what will fix this, that'll fine. But if you just keep doing the same old thing all the time, where's the fun in that? Right. Anything in particular right now that's new that's got your attention that that's got you sort of gnawing on a on a new edge? Oh, there's always new fun things. Um, I went to a seminar recently with a professor from Beijing called Chen Ming, and uh, he had some really good angles on Shang Han Lun formula. So I've been been trying out some of those. I mean, that's just a that's a such a deep. Uh, such a deep subject and an amazing resource for us to use and and so simple in so many in so many cases so yeah that's uh, i'm really having a lot of fun you should you should get him on chen ming he doesn't speak english you'd have to translate for him <laughs> well i i can kind of get around in chinese but i think i'll get someone else to do the translation cuz uh-huh. hosting a show and trying to translate the guests at the same time True, true, true. That's a lot of bandwidth. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, yeah, I'll, I'll see. That, that might be fun. You know, we did that show with Huang Huang. Yeah, that was great. I, I love that A little while show. ago. Um, yeah. And that was really fun because as I was editing it, I realized, oh, my God, we can do a Chinese show as well. So it was the, it was the first bilingual podcast for Geological. There's some, yeah, there's some great talent. Well, you know, and the, the talent is both in China and the West. I think uh, – you know, people often talk about, oh, you know, the communists, they really destroyed Chinese medicine. And, and I think I, I don't necessarily agree with that. All of Chinese medicine is still there. You know, it's in the books. And lots of people like Huang Huang and Chen Ming and uh, Wang Jui and so on, they don't just let it rest with what they learned. I think what the, what the communists did, if we have to put it like that, is they, they made it available for widespread education instead of just having to do an apprentice style thing you could teach classes and have 
people know all the basics. But even after five years, even after five years in a Chinese medical school, there's still so much to do. What I think has been a, not so great in China is the this push to integrate Chinese and Western medicine and the push to make Chinese medicine more like Western medicine. I think that's mm -hmm. a that's a a disaster. And uh, and for example, Chenming, when we went to dinner, and I was saying he was asking about the clinic and dispenser. I say, yeah, we do all of our own powder, and you know, we weigh out herbs in the old way. And he said, really? He said, oh gosh, you know, the foreigners are doing it. Foreigners are doing um, keeping Chinese medicine the way it was in the old days. With he was saying that approvingly, by the way. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of, like in Taiwan, you're doing a lot of granules. China, the granule factories are really pushing it hard to do granules. And uh, not, like I said, I don't have anything against granules, but you, I think you do lose a little bit of the subtlety sometimes. Well, we certainly lose some of the flexibility. You can add some things, but you can't take things away. Yeah, if you're doing formulas, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, Steve, it, it's been an absolute pleasure, as it always is. Um, I look forward to a time when we can actually sit down in the same time zone and maybe have a cup of Taiwanese tea together. That would be nice. I'm expecting a shipment of tea from uh, Taiwan. Are you now? Friend of mine. Yeah, yeah. Friend of mine years ago wandered around Taiwan and happened to find this wholesaler that, that was a representative for a grower up in the mountains. And introduced me to their Suji Chun, the Four Seasons. Um, oh man, I love Suji Chun. Yeah, which it's a, which is a variation of Tie uh, Guanyin, the Iron Buddha, and it is fab yeah. fabulous. Yeah, well, this friend was. Hey, wait a minute, that was you. <laughs> You're the one who introduced me to these people. Well, I've been importing from them now for like 15 years. So thank you, Michael. You know. One of the fun things about hanging out in a place like Taiwan, well, China too, for that matter, you go there to study, at least I went there to study medicine, but all the other stuff that happened around that, that was actually the sweet stuff. I mean, I got to learn some medicine too. That was wonderful. But all the other stuff around it is, um, has actually been invaluable in, uh, in, in really in practicing. Yes. Some of those unconscious cultural things, you know, there's no separation between mind and body that say naps are a really good thing, for example, that it isn't a sin to enjoy food mm -hmm. and that the food that you eat can actually really be healthy and still bloody delicious. All that stuff, you know, just shows some of the weird ways that we come at life in, in the West. Not to, not to say they don't have some weird things too. <laughs> no, they they got they got their own plenty of weird things. But you know, even simple things like you know, cold, right? I mean, we know that the Chinese have this thing about fearing cold, and here in the West, trying to get people to stop drinking ice water when they got digestive issues uh -huh. is, uh, you know, it's yeah, <laughs> it's so hard. But I, I remember working in a in a clinic in Beijing. Totally illegal thing, but you know, we owe Guanxi, so make Guanxi. And I, I was seeing Chinese people, the ones that would be willing to see me. And I had this woman come in one day, young woman in her like mid 20s ish. And she says, uh, I just got my period two days ago. Last night I went out with my girlfriends, and unthinkingly, I drank an iced soda 
and my period stopped. I've got a headache. I'm nauseous and bloated. And I thought, man, Chinese medicine is so easy when you do it in Chinese. Yes, because they notice the connections. She told me exactly what I needed to do. Yeah. Right? I mean, could you imagine someone coming in in the West and saying, well, you know, it's like, it's weird. My period suddenly stopped yet. Well, first of all, they probably wouldn't come to us and go to, I don't know what they do. So, well, um, but they, over there, yeah, there's like, oh yeah, I drank some cold and I need to go see a Zhongyi now to fix that shit. Yeah, it's, uh, it is, but you can, you can sort of, uh, track it down, but they, the thinking does make it a little bit difficult for us. On the other hand, when you read the old case histories, a lot of those doctors have to contend with people who know a little bit about something. So when, for example, mm. in a script, you hardly ever see the words da huang. It'll always be some some something like jiu da jun or something else, or da jun or sheng da jun, because every Chinese person knows what da huang does. And they're going to go, hey, you put da huang in my script. Am I going to get the runs? Or they'll go, oh, you gave me warm herbs, but I'm pretty sure what I've got is is cold. So right, right. You know, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. We don't. It goes the other way. We too. don't have to contend with that sort of stuff. Uh, the joys of, of medicine practice, huh? Indeed. Yeah. Well, Steve, again, thank you so much, and really looking forward to reading your new book. Fantastic. Nice talking to you.